Section 7 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andre Floria. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. Chapter 7 Shadowing Gloom. The long, long shadows of the tall forest trees were falling longer and longer still, athwart the closely shaven lawn which in graceful undulations spread out like a carpet before the whole lawn or garden front, or what was called the South Garden Front of Vernwood Mansion, which as yet was Captain and Marjorie Gillingham's beautiful home. It was growing late on a summer's one of our typical English summers, afternoon. The forms of the tall poplars, the majestic elms, the old gnarly oaks, with here and there the darker shadowy purple leaves of the copper beeches, or here and there the ever tremorous foliage of the asp, threw wider and wider their still lengthening shadows, as lower and lower the declining sun sank, deeper and deeper down over the wooded horizon of the west. Over the old brown stone facade of the mansion, the sculpture upon which was but sparsely ornate, the tendrils of an aged wisteria tree, with its still luxurious abundance of graceful leaves and multitudinous clusters of pendant, delicately hued flowers, were ever climbing and ever interlacing themselves, like some cunningly contrived network, wrought and entangled and knotted and interwoven by nature's most deft and dexterous hand. If such were needed, if such were possible, it seemed to add and impart still more to Vernwood of that magic aspect of home. Every available door and window had been thrown widely open, that the interior might benefit from each stray breath of the warm and health-giving summer breeze, while three persons well known to us through the medium of the foregoing chapters seemed to be reclining or lounging idly, where they could most imbibe and most luxuriate in the balm and blessing of nature to the full. Quite a little group of indoor chattels, consisting of odd, occasional tables upon which were still scattered the remains and utensils of what fashion is pleased to term five o'clock tea. Lounging chairs of exquisite beauty and curious make and other household effects from within had been carried out and accumulated and stood or lay scattered here and there in the most elegant and unpremeditated confusion. Over several square yards of the bright green sword. Two of the three personalities best known to us namely Marjorie Gillingham and Bertram Gannault, were reclining at an easy talking distance, the one from the other on lounging chairs, if chairs they were worthy to be called, of that cunning handicraft and subtle mechanism into which had been introduced the principles of engineering as if constructed by some heathen Chinese or other intellects schooled in mysterious combinations and forms. For surely no consistent Christian brain could have conceived furniture of such marvelously and curiously barbaric designs. But 
As Marjorie Gillingham sat in one of these, surrounded by, I may say enveloped in, the voluminous clouds of her gauzy summer tire, decked out coyly here and there with ruddy bunching ribbon bows of brilliant hues, her young face radiant with the charm combined of excitement of the flush of healthfulness of exquisite natural beauty, which was hers, heightened and intensified by the overflow of happiness and the joyousness of youth. She looked like some picture, some fully colored painting almost, over which the artist had shed an inexpressible coloring of light. Such a model at once, of rustic and refined and perfect loveliness, than an artist would have caught at were he in search of his ideal. Apart from the two younger members of this trio, on a seat which he had drawn up onto the broad flagstones of a terrace, a seat of a somewhat more civilized and less fantastical make and shape, sat the old man, Marjorie's father, isolated and alone. Engaged in the dual occupation of reading a French novel and simultaneously doing what had of late become his solace, smoking a cigar. The day had been one of the hottest of English summer days. Around them, on every side, in the forest, in the water, in the air, there sported and sang and buzzed and splashed and caroled almost every form and every variety of British feathered and finny insect and aquatic life. Far and near the distant woods as well as adjacent shrubberies rang ever clamorously and unceasingly with the blithesome carols of innumerable birds. The warm, bright air seemed teeming even to vitality with the motion and hum and buzz and whir of a myriad forms of insect life, while even the very waters beneath seemed to vie with the firmament above, and the air around with the splash and splatter and sportiveness of the scaled denizens of its translucent depths. All nature seemed to be alert and glad, full of gleefulness and full of joy. And yet, with all this universal overflowing restlessness, with all this intensity of life, all nature, how shall we reconcile the seeming contradiction seem to be at rest? With all its fullness, with all its overflow of the vital principle, with its amorous gleesomeness, there seemed to brood over the face of nature a holy calm. In every breeze that woke an echo in the woods, or shook a tremorous leaf upon a tree, there seemed to speak the voice divine that whispered, Peace be still. It was one of those summer days in which all nature seemed to be so full of life and love as to impart and infuse its power and influence into the human heart. For how, when all the denizens of nature around us lift up their hearts and voices in one unbroken strain of melody. How can the human heart resist the influence of nature and refuse to render back the echo of the universal song, the orison of love and praise and joyousness and glee? And seemingly, the two young lovers as they sat there, for lovers, it would be idle to deny the fact, had Bertram Gnault and Marjorie Gillingham become 
were infected by the influence of nature's universal strain. It was the burden of the old, old song that has to be again resung. It was the story of the old, old tale as old as the everlasting hills, which has to be again and again retold with an interest ever fresh and ever new. It was the tale of the youth and the maiden, which opens a new chapter and begins a new page with the beginning, the perfectionation, the opening of every fresh young life. For Marjorie Gillingham's heart was as fresh and pure and guileless and unfettered and free as the hearts of the birds which caroled around her butaceous and isolated woodland home. She had been reared and grown. She had come into womanhood, not under the deleterious influences of heated rooms, the artificial hotbeds of a, shall we say, unhealthy social life, but her mind and body, both graceful and innocent and good, like as the petals of some bright flower, its beauties had matured and unfolded amid all the freshness and all the beauty, all the health-giving influences, all the wild romance of her perfect Anglo-Welsh home, surrounded daily and hourly by the humming of insects, the splashing of waters, the songs of gladsome birds, the falling of autumnal leaves, and the budding and development of springtime flowers. And so it came to be that when the pale, handsome, but yet refined face and the graceful form of the young Bertram Gonault came to her, notwithstanding the Americanized curiosities of his talk, on which Marjorie often twitted him with satirical raillery, turning his guessing and calculating into jest. But I say notwithstanding this, the overflowing abundance of her young and unwooed heart had gone forth, and from her very soul she adored him with all the strength and passion and romance of her girlhood's first and earliest and most ardent love. Nay, all the surroundings of her and their lives seemed to fan and augment the flame. There were long rambles together in the woods. There were long, listless, lazy afternoons dallied away upon the lawn. For Bertram, although he never for an hour neglected the affairs of his newly acquired estate, attended to and got them mostly through in the earlier hours of the day. Then there were drives or horseback rides to distant villages and towns, and then they paddled together and loitered in the toy skiff or lingered by the tall beds of reeds, or toyed and trifled with the water lilies, as the tiny boat rested upon the bosom of the broad lakelet which bounded the lawn, or laughed as they startled some timid waterfowl from its reedy lair. It was a round of life for the two younger, which the elder of the trio looked upon with no disapprobatory eye. It was a round of life which seemed to pacify and soothe the peevish, querulous inclination of the declining years of the old man's life. For Marjorie, he now seemed to see a future. For did he not love her with the deepest of a father's love? Now there was a ready hand and a strong arm waiting to protect his child when his own weakening arm should be forever gone. When the few remaining years that in the course of nature he might count upon had all been told. 
Was not Marjorie the child of his age? Was not she the repetition, the counterpart of one on whom he had once doted, on whom he had lavished his unbounded love, and of one who perhaps had been taken from him even because he worshipped her, even because, in his eyes, she was the very goddess on whom his life had spent all its strength and his devotion, all its worship, before whom he knelt, and to whom he paid the meed of devotion and adoration which he had given to her even before his true and very God. It is such idols as these that death shatters with ruthless hand and wrenches with cruel relentlessness from their throne in the human heart. And terrible, when we have to bear it, is the agony of dissolution. True, Marjorie would have wealth, her own wealth. She was his only child, too. And all that now was his would soon be hers. But what consolation was that to him? Did it not lay her even more dangerously at the mercy of a designing world? So had run the old man's thoughts, such had been his fears. But now all that was changed. There was a hand and an arm strong above her, an arm stronger and more abiding than his own. Not only so, but Marjorie's would still be the old, old home, the home in which together had passed so many, many years of the father's and daughter's life, the home where she had grown to womanhood, the home where she had romped and played and rambled as a child. Such were the old man's dreams. But how cruel and thoughtless often seems to us the hand of fate. How inscrutable are its decrees. As inscrutable they seem to us as the visage of the Sphinx, which through countless generations, ever with unchanging and stony aspect, smiles almost mockingly at the vicissitudes of men. As the two lovers sat there, the day had faded almost into night. Around them, one by one, the sounds of day, for the sun had gone down, had subsided into rest, and the evening shadows were fast closing over the woodland scene. Away, high up in the mighty elms, the cawing of the rooks had ceased, and across the blackthorn and the low-lying bramble bushes, the blackbird's notes were no longer to be heard, while in the holly brake, the thrush had trilled her latest evensong. But now and again, a nightingale with intermittent floods of richest melody awoke the stillness of some secluded glen. Above their heads, here and there, from within the darkening canopy of heaven, the stars blinked shyly out of the profundity of illuminable blue, while the light mists arising from the meadows beneath unveiled the bosom of the water in a half-transparent haze from out of which the splashing rise of the spotted-sided trout or silvery grayling might be heard, or the gentle twitter of some night warbler among the sedge or reeds, or with jerky motion the moorhen piloted her fluffy brood across the stream. Far away among the tall grass, down by the course of the river, with mechanic uniformity of sound, the monotonous scraping of the land rail fell continuously and gratingly, nay, almost harshly, upon the ear. 
Surrounded by all these sounds of the closing night, Bertram still loitered and hovered about that presence, near which his love tempted him to linger, though from which his prudence prompted him to depart. Somehow they seemed to be alone, for the old man, apparently mindful of the adage about two being company and three being none, had disappeared. And there seemed to steal over the two souls that happiness which neither could have told in words and which neither needed that the other should have words to tell. Bertram took in his, the fair white hand, which lay passively and unrestingly at Marjorie's side. But articulate speech seemed to them then an utterly superfluous, an utterly unnecessary power. Why was language given to mortals when they themselves each to each were all in all? When without the utterance of words, those too often hollow, deceitful, formal conventionalities of thought, they, those two lovers heart to heart, alone, spoke with an impassioned eloquence which Demosthenes himself had never reached in his highest flights of words. With tender solicitude, Bertram arranged a woolen cloud above her shoulders, and then simultaneously, as if by the action of one heart and one mind, the two arose from their seats. I will go with you as far as the bridge, love, said Marjorie. They seemed to be for a long time the first words that she spoke. But he protested, although he in heart desired it above all things, yet he would have her go direct indoors. He pleaded the night air. Then he pleaded the damp grass. Then there was a pretty little tiff, one of your petty lover's quarrels in which woman is wont to have her way. And he, with his strong arm, drew her closely to him. And it would have been hard to tell in which of those two beings there was most of the child, whether in her, with her weak, trusting, childish womanhood, so weak and yet so strong in her very weakness, so very strong, or in him, with his strong manhood so gentled by the strength of her weak womanhood, so subdued. The wide lawn upon which they had been sitting was bounded by the river which ran through the grounds, almost parallel with the south garden front of the mansion. It was a river, widening in places almost to the broadness of a tiny lake or lakelet. Hence, in referring to it, we have often in these pages used that word. The stream at its narrowest part was spanned by a marble bridge of ionic design, over which a path led from the lawn, thence up a winding hilly road among the trees, to the dower house, now Bertram's home. The two lovers walked slowly in the direction of the Ionic Bridge. And so I won't go any farther than that, said Marjorie playfully. And so she has a will of her own. <laughs> he laughed almost jestingly. Then suddenly a shadow seemed to come over her. It seemed like some dark wave of sadness which clouded the habitual happy sunny tenor of her life. Bertram! she said suddenly. There seemed almost a determination in her tone as she spoke. Bertram, how long is this to last? 
How long may we trifle thus with love? My love, my darling, your time is mine, he answered. There is no earthly reason why we should not be man and wife. Man and wife made one, united in the sight of man and by the will of God. Just then, they reached the Ionic Bridge. She looked up into his face. It seemed as she nestled more closely to him, a look of ineffable love. There was one long ardent embrace as they said, good night, and the next minute she was gone. Gone. And as Bertram lingered a minute, gazing after the tripping fairy form, and then as he turned away and walked slowly up the hill, the shadows fell around him. The shadows fell around him. Yeah, the shadows fell around him. Verily, how darkly can the shadows fall. End of section seven.